in order to have change, in order to feel less overwhelmed, less burnt out, it doesn't need to start with a huge action. So there are all these people out there who preach, you know, it takes massive action to have any kind of change in your life. And there, there's a time and a place for that. But there's often an opportunity for small adjustments to have a huge impact. So if you're in a place where you're feeling overwhelmed, if you're feeling burnt out, if you're worried that you might not be getting enough sleep, then start small. It doesn't have to be two extra hours of sleep a day. It doesn't have to be a month-long vacation if you're feeling burnt out. Just see if there's some small form of self-care that can help you step back. And it can be so tiny, even just a moment of stillness, even just a morning routine that allows you to check in with what it is that you need each day. But whatever it is, it's okay to start small. And often that will prove to be the biggest long-term benefit, just a series of small changes over time. Welcome to the Positive Productivity Podcast, episode 603. The Positive Productivity Podcast was created to empower entrepreneurs to achieve and appreciate personal and professional success. I'm your host, Kim Sutton, and if you're ready, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of Positive Productivity. This is your host, Kim Sutton, and I'm so happy to have you here today. And I'm thrilled to introduce our guest, Travis Baird. Travis is a mindful business coach, speaker, and founder of Mindful Productive. And I had to tell you, just in our pre-chat alone, we've already had a blast. So I can't wait to just dive in. But Travis, welcome. I'm so happy to have you here. And thank you for being amused with me in the pre-chat. <laughs> Thank you, Ken. It's a real pleasure to be here this morning, and I'm excited to see where this conversation goes. Oh, me too. Listeners, you know that no part of positive productivity is scripted. No part of life is scripted. And just this morning, actually, I'm trying to close the office door. We are wrapping up summer vacation here in Ohio, so all five kids are in the house today trying to wrap up or trying to close the office door to get ready for this chat. And there's this bang, bang, bang on the front door. And I don't know about you listeners, but nobody knocks on my door. And Travis and I were talking about it before. Travis, when you were growing up, I mean, <laughs> people knocking on your door, did it, I mean, was it a thing? Yeah. I, I mean, occasionally and I feel a like welcome it, thing? yeah, <laughs> you know, friends would come down from down the street, that kind of thing. Or, you know, people would just pop over, but man, I, I feel like it hasn't, hasn't happened in a while. No, it, actually you, you have me thinking now we, my sister and I live with my mom in a big apartment complex and she would just send us out on our bikes. We would be out for hours. She's like, Oh, I know where you are. I mean, we would just be wandering around with all of our friends. It, I mean, looking at the TV now and looking back, it's like looking at, Oh, I've been chain watching little house on the prairie and they just go <laughs> out and they're out all day and their parents know they're okay. Unless they, you know, unless they run home and ask for help. And that's how it was when I was growing up. But now knock on the door. What's wrong? <laughs> but I mean, that it's interesting to think about that. I mean, mindful, productive, and we do have to be mindful. And the first thing that I shouldn't be thinking first when somebody knocks on the door, what's wrong? Mm. I should be waiting for the next best opportunity, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So how did you get into this? What did your journey look like? And what did you want to be when you were growing up? 
Oh, man. Well, let's see. Let's let's go back all the way to the beginning. The first thing I wanted to do when I was a kid was I really wanted to be an attorney. <laughs> so that's a weird thing for a I think I was six or five at the time. That's a weird thing for a five or six year old to want. But my dad was an attorney. So there you go. That was probably why that was in my my hopes and dreams. But as I as I got older, as I got into high school, I was a musician. I grew up in a very musical household. And I played the viola. Kim, do you know what a viola is? I do. Okay, awesome. So for anybody listening, a viola, I'm sure you guys all know what it is. <laughs> but it's like a violin, just a little bigger. Uh, you hold it the same way, a little lower sound. It's a great instrument, you know, highly recommend. I always thought that a viola was smaller than a violin. Oh, right. Until this very moment. <laughs> you are not the first person to think that. Uh, yeah. No, it's it's a little bigger. Yeah, and it's it's awesome. It's a great instrument. If y'all any of y'all want to pick up an instrument or you have kids who want to play violin, steer them towards the viola. It's great. Don't tell any violinists I said that. Okay. <laughs> Actually, my 16-year-old plays the cello. Oh, excellent. And he's playing the full-size one. Nice. But is it horrible to say that those first few school concerts were just like... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Every time I go back now, I'm so happy to hear the improvement. I know that's horrible to say as a mom, but those first concerts were just Oh, like, no. Oh, it's it's totally songs? true. How many more songs get me out of here? <laughs> <laughs> it's, you're, you're not alone there, Kim. And for, any, for anybody out there who goes to kids' concerts on strings, the learning curve is steep. But once you get past the first few years of learning curve, it gets really nice after that. When I was getting toward the beginning of college, as I was finishing up high school, I decided I wanted to study music in college. So I did that. <laughs> and long story short, very long story short, I ended up pursuing and getting a bachelor's, master's, and doctorate in music performance on viola. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so my dream during that time for those 10 years of school was to become a viola professor to, to teach in higher education, which is really the main reason why you get a doctorate in music. That's usually where people are headed if they're doing that. And that's what I wanted to do. But as I got to the end of my education, I started getting a lot closer with other faculty members, people who were doing the job that I wanted to do. And I got to see a lot more about what the life was like as an academic musician, as a professor at a music school. And I realized it wasn't a good fit, even though I'd had this idea of what I wanted to do and what the dream looked like to me, it didn't really match up with reality. And so as I became more aware of that, and awareness was a key part of it, you know, really building that awareness of what, where I was headed and what I was headed toward, I discovered that I needed to make a change. So right when I finished my doctorate, I ended up starting my own business, starting a coaching business, working at first with just musicians and music teachers on how to deal with burnout, overwhelm, and stage fright, which is what I did my dissertation research on. And then after, as I was doing that, as I was building that business, I started getting clients here and there who were outside of music, people who ran their own small businesses, people who were solopreneurs, coaches, and slowly realized that I really enjoyed working with wide range of people. I still work with musicians too, but all around these, these concepts of, of how to manage burnout, overwhelm, how to develop productivity systems, but from a place of mindfulness and from a place of sustainability. Hmm. I, I'm absolutely loving this, especially the handling the burnout and overwhelm. But I want to go back to what you said about stage fright, because 
Okay, my mind wandered a little bit while you were talking. I was very much listening. I want you to know that. But you had me <laughs> thinking about concert violinists. Is that the right way of saying it? Yes. Concert cellists. I don't know if I'm saying that right either. But you what is what is a concert violist called? Is <laughs> what is it? Okay, <laughs> that's a good question. So I would call myself a violist. Oh, it is a violist. A violist, yeah. So you just drop the A. Yeah. So I'm curious, though, how you chose, and I know that you got off this path eventually, but how did you choose the teaching path rather than the performing path? Or did you not decide between the two? Were you still performing? No, I mean, that's that's a great question. So the reason why I wanted to study music in college was because I loved I loved my teachers. I had had such a profoundly positive experience with my high school orchestra director and the couple of private teachers I'd had up to that point that I really wanted to do that work. I wanted to be an educator. And when I first started my degree, my bachelor's degree, my goal was to become a teacher. I wanted to just teach high school. That was where I wanted to go. When I started my degree, when I actually got to school and started my my learning process, I realized that I also loved performing. <laughs> so that's where I switched into focusing on the performance aspect of music, but with a long-term goal of using that to teach at a higher level, to teach it in college at music schools. So the shift really, it was kind of twofold. First, it was back toward performing because I loved being on stage and loved playing the music. And then back toward education as I realized that, you know, the, the teaching, the, the mentorship, the coaching that is built into being a music teacher was so central to what I wanted to do. Thank you. I love explanations like that and just hearing the backstory. And then I'm so intrigued also about, you said dissertation, right? On stage fright? Yes. Like, that just wows me. But I have to share first, and I don't think this is such an embarrassing share on, on the Positive Productivity Podcast. I was actually just talking to my sister within the last couple of weeks. She's actually on my team now, so we talk just about every single day, which is more than we talked for years before she joined my team. But we were talking about kids and music, and I think we were talking about my son who plays the cello, and my sister played clarinet starting in fourth grade or something. And she says, why did you never play music? And this is coming from my sister who strived for first chair always, and then she ended up going to Cornell and playing in the Big Red Marching Band. So, you know, it was always very much at the top of her priorities. And I was like, oh, I wanted to. And she's like, well, well why didn't you? I said, well, I wanted to play the flute, but they wouldn't let me. She's like, what do you mean they wouldn't let you? Listeners, I don't think I've ever shared before that I had braces for seven years growing up. And when they tried to test me on the flute, my overbite was so bad that I couldn't get the air into the little hole. So they told me no, and they didn't give me the option to play a different instrument. <laughs> so, thinking back, I mean, I don't know whether to be thankful. I am thankful, actually, because then I found a different art path and it took me to art school. But I think that's the first time. Whenever one door is shut, five more open. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that's, Kim, that's, thank you for sharing that. I, I'm sure everybody listening, it's wonderful to hear people share Stories like that, because so often, and this is something that I uncovered during my research on performance anxiety, most people will not talk about their fears or their discomforts around performing, whether that's in music or speaking on stage or whatever it is. 
because we all think that we're alone. We all think that our experiences that are uncomfortable or scary or or cause us to feel fear are unique to us and that we're we're totally alone and nobody else would understand. And the truth is that most people, <laughs> almost everyone, very few exceptions, experiences some level of, of stage fright, discomfort around performing, again, whether that's in music or another field. And the ability to just kind of connect on that and hear stories and people talking about what that really looks like for them is such a relief. I will never forget the first time I realized that I wasn't alone with my stage fright. And that was the beginning of being able to turn around and come back from that. So thank you for sharing that uncomfortable experience for you. Because for anybody listening, if you've had something like that or different, you're not alone. Well, looking back, and I know I've shared this before, I mean, I'm going from not performing on stage, then I ran for a school office and had to do a speech over the microphone. Mm. And my voice was shaking so bad that people thought I was crying. And now here I am. I mean, it's amazing going from that girl at 16, 17, who couldn't even talk on a microphone in an office with nobody, to speaking to who knows how many people, right? But what have you found to be good mechanisms for getting over stage fright? I mean, are there meditation techniques, breathing techniques? And I had to admit, I am speaking for the first time on stage in two months. Oh, congrats. <laughs> yes, thank you. A 45-minute talk. And I'm just like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's really exciting, first of all. Congratulations. And there are a number of things that help a lot with stage fright. And of course, just like with anything, there are no overnight quick fixes. There's nothing where, unfortunately, hey, if anybody finds a snap your fingers and it solves stage fright thing, come please email me. I'd love to hear what that is because I don't think it exists. But there are some things that do help a lot. On the the super short term, as you're like, so thinking the day before the day of, or even like right before you go on stage, one of the biggest gifts you can give yourself is to just have some moment of stillness right before you go on. And it, it can be 10 minutes before, five minutes before, 30 minutes, an hour, it doesn't matter. But having some time to just kind of collect yourself and come to a place of stillness. A lot of people, myself included, when they're about to go on stage, they get really amped up. And then they kind of ride that wave of being amped up, which can work, but it, it usually is best to have a moment to come back to stillness to be, you know, in a calm place or, or relatively calm anyway. I love that you said that because I watched, I think, what was it? I am not your guru, Tony Robbins, mm -hmm. and seeing him with the trampoline. <laughs> and that is just not me. Like, I need I need the moment of calm. So thank you so much. Yeah. I mean, we we see a lot of examples of people do, you know, riding extremely high waves of energy. And that can work for some people. Like if you're really experienced on stage and you need that energy just to get going again, I often think of there are tons of like violinists out there who tour the country. And so they play the same concerto, you know, three to five times a week at different orchestras around the country. And Let's say, you know, one night they're playing in New York with the New York Philharmonic, and then the next night they're playing in Tuscaloosa, Alabama with the Tuscaloosa Symphony. Okay, so there's there's a big change in terms of the experience for them and the pressure and all of that. So, you know, for somebody who's doing that, they might need to get amped up just to feel that energy that, that kind of drives the excitement on stage. But for most of us who don't perform, you know, five times a week for our lives, it's helpful to have a moment of stillness. 
And then the other thing, the thing that helped me probably the most, and I think this will resonate a lot for you, Kim, and for your listeners, it has a lot to do with, with positivity and cultivating positivity. There's a practice, which some of you may be familiar with, called visualization or imagery. And I learned about it a lot from reading books and, and hearing people talk about it in the context of sports psychology. But the idea is that you practice seeing yourself performing your best in that circumstance and really feeling that experience and visualizing it in as much detail as you can, even starting, you know, now, Kim. So if you have two months to your talk, you know, you could start by just pausing and closing your eyes and seeing yourself speaking on stage. And you might not know the exact words that you're going to say or exactly what it will look like, but really connecting with what it'll feel like and, and imagining what it could be like to perform your best on stage. And inevitably, when we do this, little fears pop up. So like, <laughs> for me, it, it used to be that I would get up on stage with my viola and I'd start playing and my bow would start shaking, which Kim, you have, you have a cellist in your family, so you can ask them if they would enjoy their bow shaking when they're on stage. <laughs> but it's not fun. I'm going to have to ask him that when he gets up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. that's just never something that even occurred to me because I never played. Right. <laughs> well, it's the equivalent of a really shaky voice or shaky knees on stage for, for speakers. It's the same kind of feeling, but it, it makes it really difficult. So I would, when I was visualizing, when I first started this practice, I would see myself getting up on stage, feeling, you know, going out and feeling confident and like opening up to the audience. And then as soon as I start playing, I'd hear myself getting shaky because that's what I expected to happen. That was the fear that I had. So then the practice is to, it, when that happens, as you're visualizing it, you have two choices. One, you can either practice just pausing the visualization and rewinding and going back and doing it again until you can hear yourself performing the way that you want to perform. So for speaking, it would be the same thing. If you hear yourself getting shaky or saying the wrong thing or you know feeling uncomfortable, just pausing, going back. That's option one. Or the second way to practice is to do the same kind of visualization technique, but then when something happens that you don't want or that you are afraid of, then seeing yourself maneuver around it. So it's kind of like a resiliency training, basically, to see yourself managing that and still doing a really great job. Those are two of my favorite practices for dealing with, for managing uh, performance anxiety. So my fear for the longest time was falling up the stairs. I trip over my feet on a daily basis. It's just a thing. And I've gotten used to it. But on this podcasting journey, I've realized, so what if I do? You know, just sort of like the flute story. There's a lot of other people who fear the same thing. So why don't I just get it out of the way for them? No, people, I'm not going to purposely fall up the stairs. But, you know, positive productivity is not about perfection. And if I can connect with people by just being natural. I think that is my biggest goal. Yes, the visualization, but I think actually there is no but. That's what I'm going to be visualizing is just the connection. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that makes stage fright so real is this strong feeling of aversion and fear. So like the fear, you gave a perfect example, the fear of falling up the stairs. You're not alone on that one, Kim. So if you're going into a performance and all you can think is don't fall up the stairs, don't fall up the stairs, don't fall up the stairs, and that's all you're focused on, then it becomes, it kind of takes up your whole world and everything is hinged on did I fall up the stairs or not? Whereas I think this approach where it's just, yeah, if I fall up the stairs, okay, that's fine. Nothing bad, nothing bad there. That, that is what it is. It's may not, it may not be 
what others would think of as ideal, but it's okay. Uh, and I can still, I can still get up and speak after that and it'll be all right. So I, yeah, I, I totally, I think the long-term game is to get to where any kind of performance, whether that's music or speaking is just an experiment. It's just another shot to get out there and try and do your thing and see what happens and learn from that or not. <laughs> and it's whatever it is, is okay. Oh, I love that. I love that. So I just want to share the event that I'm speaking at is a three day event and I'm speaking on the last day. So I love going to events and just connecting with as many people as possible and getting to know them and just sitting, you know, I am an introvert. So big events, they're exhausting to say the least, but just, you know, pulling a couple chairs into a corner and having a quiet conversation, getting to know somebody. I love that. So going into this, I think I'm really going to be focusing on that. But I, I never even thought about it until just now. Even athletes going out into the court or onto the big field, there's got to be stage fright there. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Super Bowl. Am I going to hit or am I going to kick that winning field goal? Or is it going to bounce off the post to like, oh my gosh, I would not even want that fear going through my brain. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, fortunately, I think because there's so much money in sports, that's where, well, I don't know if that's the reason, but it feels like possibly the reason why there's been tons of research on sports psychology. And there's a lot, there's an industry around dealing with performance anxiety in a sports context. But it's really great because we, as musicians, as speakers, as, as people who are out in the world doing other things, we can still use that knowledge and that new understanding and just apply it to our own lives. So yeah, it, it's definitely similar. And in some ways, man, if you imagine getting out and having 90,000 people in the stadium, and then several million people watching at home, and you're the one who has to either, you know, kick the field goal or in basketball, take the free throw shot, whatever it is, those moments, you need to have a really strong approach to, to the mental game of that. But it's, it's all learnable. I wanted to take a quick break from today's episode and ask you if you need to take a break from your business. Maybe you're working too many hours. Maybe you're trying to work on too many things. Maybe you have too many clients who just really aren't aligned with your greater purpose. If this sounds like you, I want to offer you an opportunity to join the Positive Productivity Pod, my monthly mentorship and coaching community. For only a dollar, you can jump in, get started, and enjoy 10 days in the community where you will meet so many awesome entrepreneurs. And then twice a month, you'll be able to hop on a live call with all of us and get the feedback that you need in that very moment for your business. If you're interested in starting today for only a dollar, head on over to thekimsutton.com forward slash pod to get started. What would you say would be, and maybe these two aren't separatable. I think I just made up a word. What would you say would be the difference between staying in the now and visualization? I mean, can you stay in the now and focus on what you're doing this very moment and still be visualizing? Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And this is really, this gets at a, a core question and kind of, I guess, a rub that appears between mindfulness and visualization practices that a lot of people encounter and have too. So I think of visualization as a practice that you do to help cultivate a sense of possibility. Because most of us, a lot of us, when we first encounter new performance experiences, 
we tend to imagine the worst case scenario, or we tend to fear something that we're just afraid of. And so we kind of ruminate on that. So practicing visualization is an extremely effective way to counter that or balance it out uh, with, okay, I can see these maybe scary thoughts and I can, I can balance them out. I can counter them with this, what I think is actually possible for me and what I'm going to do and really building that sense. And in that it's really, you're, you're projecting into the future. I mean, you're visualizing yourself in a different circumstance. So in a way you can be mindful during that practice, <laughs> but in another way, it's not really mindfulness because you're, you're seeing the future, you're imagining. So that's a practice that you do. And then on the other side, or maybe just, next to it, you have mindfulness practice where you're really present with what is. And so using the sports analogy, if you're a field goal kicker and you need to get ready for a big moment, so an end of game, taking the field goal from you know 30 yards out that'll win the game, beforehand, you do visualization practice to build a sense of what's possible to really have that belief and trust in your own capability, especially because you've done lots of training. So you're reinforcing that that positive sense, so that when you get to the moment, you're not visualizing anymore, you're just there, and you're just doing the thing that you already know you can do. And so you walk out, and then you're truly practicing mindfulness, you're in a flow state where you're just going through and doing the thing that you've been able to do, and you're fully present in the moment during that experience. So that's, it's kind of a complicated thing. But I think I think that gets it at the difference between those two. Yeah, I love that very much. I use visual can we just come up with a new word? Visualization. Yeah, it, there, I got it. I'm not yeah. saying it again. On a regular basis, I know that it's something that a lot of people talk about using, you know, daily, even multiple times a day to picture what their, you know, what their future is going to look like. And yes, I've done it in that way myself. You know, I have a dream house and I'll walk myself through the sights and smells and what I feel going through. And usually, the scenario that I use is just waking up in the morning and I'll even picture what the ceiling looks like. Okay, people, I have a tray ceiling, which has a gorgeous ceiling fan. Yes, I sleep with a ceiling fan on, but I, I picture every single element like that and just know what I'm working for. But staying in the now and being truly mindful. Oh my gosh. I didn't even really understand what that was until I started the podcast. <laughs> and there was a guest who came on and was even talking about when we're in the shower, just appreciating and being right there in that very moment, feeling the water and smelling the soaps and everything, and just being right there. And until that moment, I can tell you that I had never been right there in the shower, experiencing the shower without thinking about 18,000 other things. Positive productivity is not about perfection. Some days I can't help people planting the home phone on my desk right before a podcast. (laughs) 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 But yeah, after that moment, though, and that was a couple years ago, I really do my best. It's a constant evolving practice. Would that be fair? Mm-hmm. Of Absolutely. bringing myself back to the shower instead of thinking about, you know, the million item long to do list that I have for the day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, <laughs> I really like how this is evolving. This experience of being present and the experience of visualizing the future, these are two things that are so different. And yet we can use them both. And we can use any number of other practices too. And there's room for all of them. And one of the things that I, I find a lot when I talk with folks about this is that they have this sense that 
if I'm not fully mindfully aware or mindfully present all the time, then I'm a failure. And I will just say that if you're able to, you can let go of that because <laughs> nobody is fully mindfully present all the time. I mean, if you want to get into some some spiritual stuff, you could say maybe sometimes, but for the most part, that's not really the goal. It's more just you have that in your toolbox. You have the ability to come back. And if you want to bring that out more in your life, you have that. And on the same time, at the same time with imagery practices or visualization practices, you can use those sometimes, but the goal is not to constantly be there all the time either. It's more just as to use them when they're needed, when they're helpful for you. So, um, you know, there's room, to, there's room for lots of things and there's room to be a human and can to be imperfect. <laughs> I am perfecting imperfection. And I love every second of it. How do you bring yourself back to the moment when you find yourself straying off? Oh, man. So one of the things that comes up a lot in my life as a, as a business owner is the feeling of being behind, not feeling, feeling like I'm not far enough along yet, even though objectively things are great, like things are going really well. So there's nothing, there's nothing to be upset about, but the feeling of I'm behind, I should be farther along comes up a lot and it pulls me out of present moment awareness. It pulls me out of my ability to do my best work because it gets me into a space of fear. It gets me into a space of wondering, am I good enough? Do I deserve to do this work? And so when those kinds of thoughts or any other distracting thoughts for that matter come up, the most useful thing I found is when I see those things, just recognize them, just pausing and noticing that that's happening. So noticing those thoughts, because most of the time we don't notice when we're having thoughts, worries, emotions like that. So just pausing and noticing is sometimes enough on its own. But then after I, I notice it, actually, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> do you do anything in your daily practice to alert yourself that it's time to pause? Yes. So with that, one of the most useful things that I found is to use some kind of journaling practice. It doesn't have to be formal. You know, we're all about imperfection here. So some kind of way to just write down what you're experiencing on a day to day basis. And that allows me at least to illuminate the kinds of things that are coming up in my life in my emotional place. So there are a couple things. One is just building a sense of awareness around what kinds of things draw me out of my experience. So for me, I know that occasionally it's imposter syndrome, fear of failure, you know, just general distraction, social media, that kind of stuff. And so I know, I know what those are. And I've built kind of a, a library, a sense of what those are. But then in my daily practice, in addition to using a journaling practice, uh, one of my favorite things is I start every day before I start working, I start with a morning routine, which is designed to build a sense of awareness. So it starts with just a simple breathing, deep breathing practice to get in touch with my body. And then moving into a brief mindfulness meditation to just see what's there, to see what's present and to, you know, have a moment because how many times do we go through a whole day without having a moment of stillness? So just a couple of minutes of that. And then moving into a brief questioning meditation where I ask myself, what do I need right now? And just noticing what comes up. And starting from that place Often, it cultivates a sense of possibility that I may, throughout the day, see what's coming up in my life. You have me thinking about moments of stillness. I can tell you that there hasn't been one yet today. <laughs> and there most definitely was not one yesterday. <laughs> so yep. I'm going to have to, 
I have a reminder on my phone and on my computer to get up multiple times a day. And thanks to you, I think today I need to set a reminder to be still. Mm. So thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> my child, my 13-year-old yesterday saw the get up reminder. He's like, did you still think you were going to be sleeping? He saw it at 11 o'clock. I was like, heck no. This is my reminder to get out of my chair and move. <laughs> He's like, oh. <laughs> He's like, why do you need a reminder to do that? I was like, well, because there's so many days that I just, my butt is glued to the chair and I forget to get up. He's like, yeah, I guess I can see that. Mm, absolutely. Listeners, I would love to know what reminders you have set up in your life. As entrepreneurs, it can be so easy to, as I just said, have our butts glued to our chair, forget to eat. I've done that. And oh my gosh, the hungry grumpies can get so bad. There are those days where I stand up and forgive the TMI, but I'll realize that I haven't gone pee in eight hours. And all of a sudden it feels like my bladder is in my toes. No, I did not pee myself, but I'm just like, oh my gosh, get out of my way. I have to go. But what reminders do you have in your life? I would love to hear, and I'm sure Travis would as well. So head on over to the show notes page at thekimsutton.com forward slash PP603 and leave a comment down below. Where did you see the big shift, Travis, in going from, you know, the stage fright to the mindfulness? Or did it really just weave its way in organically? Or, I mean, was there some big aha for you? Wow. It happened really slowly, I think, over time. For me, there weren't any big, like, life-changing aha moments, but there were lots of small moments. So when I say lots, I mean dozens and dozens <laughs> of small moments. So in my life as a musician, probably one of the most memorable things was my first yoga class that I went to. I was working on my master's degree, living in Baltimore at the time. And I lived about three blocks from or four blocks from a really great yoga studio in Baltimore. And I was struggling as a musician with a lot of physical tension that was getting in the way of my playing and that was causing me some pain. And also, of course, as I was getting closer to my professional life as a musician, I was running into a lot more uh, stage fright. And so a, a mentor of mine said, hey, why don't you try practicing yoga? Why don't you just go check that out, see how that goes for you? <laughs> and so I went to a class at this studio and I had the experience that a lot of people have in their first yoga classes, which is that I picked a class that was much too hard for me <laughs> for where I was. Uh, and it was very hot and I nearly passed out and nearly threw up. Uh, sorry for that gross image. But positive I, productivity means it's <laughs> gross. It's okay. <laughs> so, but I didn't throw up. So there you go. So there's, it, it stayed clean, um, although very sweaty. And what happened from that experience after I recovered, after the class, I got through, everything was fine. I wasn't hurt. But afterward, what happened was I realized that there was so much in my physical awareness that I was not in touch with. There was so much about my body and how I was moving and how I felt in my body that was just fully ignored. And I, I can look back now and, and see that, you know, building a sense of physical awareness just wasn't part of my life before then. So it opened up a new direction for me. And I ultimately became, I went to yoga classes so much over the next couple of years and ended up becoming a registered yoga teacher. And yoga is still a big part of my practice now. But that moment of 
oh my goodness, there's so much here that I didn't, I wasn't seeing before, really started something for me. And then from a place of internal, you know, more emotional and uh, mental awareness in terms of being aware of my thoughts and what I was, that side of life, that started to open up too, albeit much more slowly. And over the course of the next, you know, five, six years, it just deepened through continuing to practice and explore. There was no big like moment or shift, but just a slow change. And I, I'd like to think I'm still in that change and that it will continue for the rest of my life. I had never thought about a yoga class that would be too hard. <laughs> they exist. Uh, yeah. And I was actually going to be looking into yoga classes. Listeners, you know, I've been saying this for a while now. And I honestly, I don't even know if the yoga studio is still here in my town. Unfortunately, local small businesses with brick and mortar locations just come and go faster than I can even get downtown, it feels like sometimes. But thank you. Like that will be a question to ask. And I would love to see it evolve. Going back to what we even talked about earlier with music. Lately, I've even been thinking about, I would love, and I'm going to, start playing the guitar. It's been something that I've wanted to do since high school, but I was doing too many other things. And today, on top of adding a reminder to be still and to be present, I'm going to look into that yoga shop and also into guitar lessons. That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> I'm so glad to be a part of that journey, Kim. And for anybody out there, for you, obviously, Kim, and for anybody else who's listening, if if there's something like that where either fear or a past experience has been holding you back from being able to pursue something that you feel really connected with or that you've always wanted to do, then the good thing is that the past is not indicative of the future. You can always, you know, start new, start fresh. And there's always opportunities to explore new things like that. And I, I love that. I actually just recently started playing the ukulele because it was something that I just thought was really fun. And I, you know, I've always wanted to do it, but I've stopped myself because, oh, it's a silly little instrument. It's not a serious musician's instrument, you know, all this kind of silly, all this, these thoughts that were just getting in the way, but I wanted to do it since I was a kid. And so finally, I realized what was going on. I was like, okay, I think I can, I can finally start playing the ukulele. And, and that experience over the last couple of months has been really fun. And it's been very enriching for my life. So yeah, it's always there for you. I cannot, like, there's no way that I can pronounce his name and he's passed, but that awesome Hawaiian dude. Oh, yeah, is? is? Yes, thank you. I forgot that I could just say it the short way. I mean, <laughs> he would be the first one who would say the ukulele is not just some silly, tiny little, you know, kid instrument. I mean, look at his reach. Oh, yeah. It's like, yeah. And it just sounds so beautiful. I mean, yeah, you, you don't really think about that, but he does. I mean, even the harmonica or spoons, you know? Absolutely. You, you can make beautiful music out of anything. I could sit here and tap my pen on my desk to a rhythm and find something beautiful in it. Oh, yes. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> it's funny because I, I too often forget these little opportunities to bring music into our lives. There's so many. I mean, it's it's infinite, but we also always have our voices. You know, we, we have our voices wherever we go if, if that's comfortable for you, then then singing is also always on the table. And, and that's, I don't know, there's something really powerful with just tapping into the musical side of our of our lives as humans. So there's lots of ways to do it. It doesn't need to be perfect. And it took me a long time to learn that as a musician. <laughs> Travis, what are you most excited about in the next 90 days? 
Ooh, I am most excited. Well, okay. So the thing that I'm probably actually most excited about today is we just we just moved into a new house here in San Antonio. So I'm really excited about about setting up, getting the garden going in the backyard. But so that's that's one side of my life. On the business side of my life, I'm really excited because I have recently had the opportunity to connect with some really great entrepreneurship groups here in San Antonio and we are working on some new projects that I think are going to both have a big profound reach here in San Antonio, but then also will, you know, just empower potentially some some long-term larger change in how we think and talk about mindfulness and think and talk about connections in the world. So I'm really excited about those things. And what would be your dream day? In the day, let me try that again. What would be your dream day? Well, hmm. I'll just stop there. Yeah. <laughs> That's oh, let's see. We'll make it. We'll make it a work like a day when I'm working because you know that's. Thank most you. That's days. what I was trying to say, but yeah. words just wouldn't come out of. My <laughs> no, so I think I'll get out of the way that you know I grew up as a and still and still have to contend with the fact that I was very much a perfectionist and tend toward workaholic behavior. So it's been a long journey, and I, I'm finally at a point now where I think I can honestly say that. An ideal workday would entail some work, but also some things that are not work. So, you know, having the opportunity to coach uh, working one-on-one with two clients on a, in a day is my happiest, sweetest spot. To have the opportunity to then connect on some level with a group of people. So, I, we I, there's a a nonprofit that we recently started here called uh, Mindfulness in San Antonio, and I really love meeting with those folks. So having that meeting, having a chance to connect and, and really have community from that standpoint. And then I think honestly, having some time outside, either just stillness in the yard, just sitting on my patio, observing, or having a chance, if, if I'm feeling energetic, then going for a run. Uh, we have some really nice trails near here. A lot of, I never thought of San Antonio as having cool trails to walk and run on, but there are some great ones. <laughs> if you're ever visiting, please feel free to reach out to me and I can recommend some. And then yeah, having some time to to spend with my wife and just enjoy being and whatever that means. <laughs> so it could it could be a lot of different things. But yeah, I think that's kind of encapsulates what I'd see as an ideal day. Awesome. I love it. So I have to admit that last night, okay, very early this morning, I was laying in bed trying to get to sleep. And I was thinking, you know, there's all those people who get up at four and five o'clock in the morning, and they get those couple hours of sleep before the kids wake up. And oh, that sounds so delicious, but oh my gosh, it's already two o'clock. Do I really want to get up at four or five? And listeners, you've heard me talk about sleep deprivation and burnout. And Travis, I know that that's something that you address too. And I was like, nope, if I'm going to do that, it's not starting today because there's no way I'm going to get through tomorrow and podcasting and just all the work that I have to do on two hours of sleep. So let's have this discussion again tomorrow night, Kim. (laughs) (laughs) Do we really want to get up at four or five o'clock in the morning? Because I got to say, at first, I was thinking, no, you know, I get a surge of productivity about 10 o'clock at night. But lately, I've been getting a lot more tired. See, this is what I don't want to happen on stage is lose my voice like that. (laughs) Oh, 
(laughs) (laughs) Um, That's what the glass of water is going to be for. Yes, But more and more, I'm realizing that my productivity does come in those morning hours before the kids get up. But there's just something so unappealing to me about getting up before the sun comes up. I love hearing the birds and just, you know, I love when the sun is rising, but getting up even before that happens, mm mm-mm. Like, mm. I, I think I would feel, I, I don't know, maybe I'll just have to try it for a week or two and see what it's actually like. <laughs> but Travis, where well, you, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I mean, this taps into one of my pet peeves, if we can have pet peeves. Uh, <laughs> this is this is one for me, where the idea that there's a best way to like work or live your life is really pervasive in all areas of life. Anybody who's listening, watch some ads, uh, you know, peruse through Facebook and see what ads you get. There's people are always selling the way, the one way to do things. And for, you know, especially when it comes to our work lives, there are all these people who will say, okay, all you got to do is get up at 4 a.m. and work, especially if you have kids, you know, get it, get it in before the kids are up. Or all you got to do is work from 10 p.m. until 3 a.m. and you can work then. Or all you got to do is work only between the hours of 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. and take Fridays off. Like, There's people selling everything (laughs) and telling you that that's the one way. And the reality, the truth, I believe, is that we're all totally unique and we are all in unique life situations. And both you yourself and then also you yourself now in this present circumstance, you need something that is unique to you. So feeling that pressure, and I have succumbed to it so many times to work starting at 4am or to work for 15 hours a day or whatever it is. The reality is that whatever you need is what you need. And sleep is essential. You know, some people can get by on less and that's cool. (laughs) But it's like 1% of the population. Right. It's a very tiny, tiny, tiny percentage. And I think most of us, if you think you might need a good amount of sleep, then probably you do. And it's a basic need. We need sleep in order to be okay. And like you said to Kim, to help prevent and come back from the edge of burnout. And so getting sleep is most important. And then I think most of us feel that pressure to work more, work harder, to, you know, work a certain way, to have to replicate what somebody else is doing or to follow, follow a guru. There are so many things we can learn from others, but at the end of the day, it all has to come back to, well, does this work for me in my life right now? And in my circumstance with my family and all of that. And it's harder work than just following somebody's system. It's always easier to just say, okay, I'm following the system that somebody gave me. I did that so much. <laughs> I can, I speak, yeah, I'm speaking from experience. It's, it's much more comfortable to just follow a system. But often, well, almost always, or maybe always, maybe we'll just go there always, those systems were not designed for us today in our unique circumstance right now. So there's always some adjustment needed. I read the four hour work week a few years ago, and I am going to say that there were definitely valid points and pieces of advice that I took out of the book. But sometimes I feel like too many people feel like they're not successful because they don't have four hour work weeks. Yes. (laughs) Personally, a four hour work week would drive me insane because I love what I do. I absolutely love what I do. And to me, working it doesn't feel like work. It feels like play. So it would be robbing me of some type of enjoyment, I feel like, if that's where I got to. Am I saying that I don't want to, you know, get to the point where I can take vacations or take a whole week off without work, you know, once a month? Maybe. 
but I've been even trying to give myself those one week a month. That's no calls or anything. And I'm still working because I love it. Yeah. So yeah, just like Travis <laughs> said, I mean, do what feels right to you. And I just want to address burnout. Listeners, if this is your first episode, burnout is not just feeling tired and cranky. Burnout can be so much more. And if you haven't listened to previous episodes where I've discussed it, you can go back and listen to episode five or episode one. Yes, this is episode 603. But I wound up in the mental hospital once and I wound up in a suicidal state a second time because I was so severely sleep deprived that my body just revolted. So if you're not taking care of your sleep, if you're not taking care of yourself, there will be consequences. So stop listening, stop buying into all the ads that say that you need to sacrifice everything to build your business. Because when you sacrifice all of that, including your self-care, then there's not going to be anything left to build your business. Yes. <laughs> yes. Travis, where can people find you online, connect and get to know more about you? So my website is mindfulproductive.com. And that is probably the one of the easiest ways to find me. Uh, if you are on Instagram and you, you like Instagram, then uh, I'm at mindfulproductive. You can find me there. If you ever want to reach out, send me an email or Facebook message. I'm on Facebook. You can just find me, my name, Travis Baird, and uh, feel free to email me anytime, Travis at mindfulproductive.com. Fabulous. And listeners, all the links will be in the show notes, which you can find at thekimsutton.com forward slash PP603. Travis, this has been amazing. So thank you so much for joining me today. Do you have a parting piece of advice or a golden nugget that you can share with listeners? Oh, thank you so much, Kim. And and yeah, I I think to me, one of the things that really turned things around was when I realized that in order to have change, in order to feel less overwhelmed, less burnt out, it doesn't need to start with a huge action. So there are all these people out there who preach, you know, it takes massive action to have any kind of change in your life. And there there's a time and a place for that. But there's often an opportunity for small adjustments to have a huge impact. So if you're in a place where you're feeling overwhelmed, if you're feeling burnt out, if you're worried that you might not be getting enough sleep, then start small. It doesn't have to be two extra hours of sleep a day. It doesn't have to be a month-long vacation if you're feeling burnt out. Just see if there's some small form of self-care that can help you step back. And it can be so tiny, even just a moment of stillness, even just a morning routine that allows you to check in with what it is that you need each day. But whatever it is, it's okay to start small. And often that will prove to be the biggest long-term benefit, just a series of small changes over time. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Positive Productivity Podcast. When I'm not podcasting, I'm supporting six to seven figure business coaches with their marketing automation and entrepreneurs like you through my coaching and mastermind programs. I want to invite you to visit thekimsutton.com to learn how I can help you take your business to the next level. Uh-huh.